Welcome back to the Adam Schefter Podcast as we head straight into the thick of the playoff race and week 15. Today, we will be joined by the young, energetic, and I mean energetic, offensive coordinator of the Arizona Cardinals, Drew Petzing, who started his NFL coaching career with the Cleveland Browns in 2013, then spent six years with the Vikings before returning to Cleveland for three years under the Browns' current head coach, Kevin Stefanski. This offseason, Petzing joined Arizona, where he's worked with the Cardinals head coach, Jonathan Gannon, and the comeback quarterback, Kyler Murray, to build a team that is coming off a big win in Pittsburgh against the Steelers. But first, we're going to be diving into this week's hot topics, some of the main issues around the NFL. We're going to be doing it with the head of the Fantasy Focus podcast, my friend Daniel Dopp. Here's this week's Six Pack. What up, Adam Schefter? It is good to see you on a Tuesday after doing a Sunday morning show. This is my first time hosting FF Now and doing a linear TV segment with you, Adam Schefter, which <laughs> was very fun doing long shots with you in place of Field Yates. Uh, I actually don't know who won that. Do you know who won long shots this week, or do we have to wait? It's typical of my whole week, Daniel. We were vying for seating in the ESPN War Room Playoff League. Mm. And my friend Mike Cambrari beat me out there. And oh. it left us with a terrible matchup. I get Chad Minatello in the first round. His team is stacked. He gets Stefania Bell. Her team is stacked. Bet he won the battle, as I told him. And we both lose the war. We both have <laughs> horrible draws in the first <laughs> round of the ESPN 16-team War Room Playoffs. But you mentioned who won the long shot battle. I checked this morning. And like I said, Field picked Alec Pierce, who had 4.2 fantasy yep. points this weekend. I picked Dontavian Wicks, who had four points. Field ah. beat me by point two. So that's two weeks in a row he's now beaten me. I had All I needed was one win to clinch the season, and he's now won two straight weeks. No. So I've, open, I've opened the door on him and given him a chance. Wow. Wow, that is tough, Adam. Well, hopefully things go better for us today than they did on Sunday. Let's dive into this week's six-pack. Topic number one, Adam, I got to talk about backup quarterbacks. When you look at just week 14 alone, these are the backup quarterbacks that won football games for their teams. Bailey Zappi for the Patriots. Jake Browning for the Cincinnati Bengals. Joe Flacco got a win. Zach Wilson got a win. Josh Dobbs or Nick Mullins, whichever one you want to give that win to. And that doesn't even include Monday Night Football, Adam, where you had both Will Levis and you had Tommy DeVito go out there and show what they can do on a national level. I've heard the old story where I don't know if it was the Colts GM or manager said Peyton Manning gets hurt. Then we're effed and we don't practice F. Feels like a lot of teams are actually practicing that nowadays, Adam. And we've seen what it looks like when you have a decent backup quarterback. I mean, how valuable are backup quarterbacks in today's NFL now? You know, Dave, if we go back to last season, the 49ers lose Jimmy Garoppolo. They turn to Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy turns into Brock Purdy and yeah. saves their season and now yep. is an MVP candidate. This year, we've seen a slew of quarterbacks go out once again. You brought up some of the names there right now. But what is Jake Browning meant to the Cincinnati Bengals? And let me say this. One of my vivid preseason encounters this year, when I was with O's the Mentalist in Cincinnati, I was outside their team meeting room, and 
Lo and behold, a couple of guys walk over, and it was Jake Browning and Trevor Simeon. We stood there talking for five minutes. And it's funny because I know their names. I've met and spoken with Trevor before, I believe. I don't think I'd ever met or spoken to Jake Browning, but I've I've heard about Jake Browning all the time. I watch preseason football. Uh, and Jake Browning can play. Jake Browning is a player, okay? Yeah. That guy has a chance to get that team, I think, to the postseason. I've been very impressed. And you know what? It's not surprising. I've heard Jordan Palmer talk about him. Jordan Palmer worked with him during the offseason. This is a guy who had all kinds of high school records. He won in college at Washington. If you can do all those things, there's a chance, a chance, it's going to happen at the next level. Hardly, not always, we know that. But Jake Browning has been impressive. And what about Joe Flacco? Straight oh, off man. the couch, onto the practice squad, onto the Browns roster, now has the Browns in the thick of a playoff race. And by the way, as we taped this Tuesday morning at 8.30, he reverted back to the Browns practice squad. And if there were a team out there that needed a quarterback, Chargers, you could go sign Joe Flacco to your active roster right now. Right now. And he could go try to take you to the playoffs. And so Joe Flacco was sitting out there the whole time. Elite Joe Flacco, I might add. You're right. Sign him. And we're seeing Tommy DeVito rally the Giants to three straight wins. We're all laughing about Tommy Cutlets. But here goes Tommy Cutlets stacking up victory after victory, leading the Giants into New Orleans this week. And so here's my takeaway on all this. We see time and time again the value and importance of a backup quarterback. We see the teams that don't have one wash out when the quarterback gets hurt. We see the ones that do have one, at least they're not going to be the same guy as the franchise quarterback, never are. Obviously, there aren't enough great quarterbacks to go around. But you have to keep rolling the dice on these quarterbacks. If I were with a team, I would be drafting a quarterback every single year. I'd be rolling the dice on one of these guys because the value and importance to them is so great. And so there's just a lesson in this again this year. Quarterbacks matter. They're valuable. You can't have enough of them. Keep rolling the dice on them. Keep trying to groom and develop guys who are accomplished. Keep trying to go back to that well because we have seen the value of a good backup quarterback who can help save a team season. Yeah, we absolutely have. That has been one of the things that we have seen more often than not with all the injuries this year. The backup quarterback is something that uh, more teams need to make sure they have in their arsenal, Adam. All right, topic number two. I want to ask you about Brandon Aubrey. It's not just the value of a backup quarterback, Adam. I'm bringing up a kicker. That's where we're at right now. This is the new modern-day 30 for 30. ESPN would love this, right? 30 for 30? He's attempted 30 field goals and made all 30 <laughs> field goals. This guy has been unbelievable with everything he's done. And again, I want to go back to my preseason road trips with O's the Mentalist. We went to Oxnard, California, and we were waiting in this area, this waiting room outside the Cowboys meeting rooms where a bunch of units were assembled in different rooms for meetings. And all of a sudden, John Bones Fossil, who I've known for a long time, knew his dad in Denver when his dad was the Broncos interim head coach. He was an offensive coordinator. Jim Fossil, friend of mine, John Bones Fossil walks out. We're talking about the Cowboys special teams. And I said, what about your kicker this year? And he said, oh. I got a guy I love. And I said, what's his name? Brandon Aubrey. Really? Oh, yeah. I And now listen, you don't know what's going to happen once you get in a game. 
But what we've seen from this guy who never played college football, who was a soccer player at Notre Dame, who hadn't been in the NFL, I, I, I think we've got something. And I said, really? And I made mental note to self, take Brandon Aubrey in all your fantasy football drafts with the way that John Bones Fossil talked about. It. Did I do that? I did not, Daniel. Okay. I took Justin Tucker in one league and then I took Young Wei Koo in the other league. And Pretty so good options. Here, yeah, but you know what? Aubrey has been unbelievable. So Sunday night against Philadelphia, kick 60, 59, 45, and 50 yard field goals. He hasn't missed all year. And he's become a secret weapon for the Dallas Cowboys, who in any close game have a kicker who won't miss. For a kicker to make it into the six-pack, the weekly six-pack, Daniel, you got to be damn good. But I go back to John Bones Fossil pointing him out to me the first week in August, telling me about Brandon Aubrey, and John Bones Fossil knew what he was talking about. Yeah, as if the Dallas Cowboys needed any more help scoring points. Let's just give him an incredible rookie kicker who has not missed a field goal yet this year. Hey, by the way, I got to tell you something. After C.J. Stroud, I might pick Brandon Aubrey for second for the Offensive Rookie of the Year. Wow. Well, you tell me. Is there another guy that you would pick over him? I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Is there not Bijan Robinson? Brandon Aubrey has been more valuable than Bijan Robinson this year. How about Jameer Gibbs? He's been good, but I think Aubrey may be more valuable. Yeah, that's a really, that's a good question. Jordan Addison, inconsistent, up and down. Yeah. Sam Laporta at the tight end position. Sam Laporta has been great. I still think Brandon Aubrey has been more impactful to his team this year than any other rookie except for C.J. Stroud. I'll tell you what, it's tough to have a better rookie season than not having any mistakes at all on your resume so far. It doesn't get any better than that. Exactly. All right. Topic number three, Adam Schefter. I don't know how we don't talk about Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs with everything that have transpired, not just this last week, but the entire season. Here's my question to you. We've been talking about, especially in fantasy, we're waiting for him to find someone, right? It looks like he's finally seen someone in Rasheed Rice. That that kid is coming along, which we really enjoy, but it almost feels like it's too little too late. And he's really the only guy in that receiving core that has stepped up. Travis Kelsey has not looked like himself. Is this a situation where you, Adam Schefter, feel like something is wrong with Patrick Mahomes in that offense? Or is this just his teammates are not out there helping him out on the field like we're used to seeing? They've let him down. They've let down the best player in all football. And if we go back to the opener, we saw it then. Your Detroit Lions. Mm. Who dropped passes in that game? Kadarius Tony. Who dropped a potential game-winning play against the Philadelphia Eagles? Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Who didn't get the call? No receiver's fault. A couple of weeks ago in Green, Marquez Valdez-Scantling didn't get a call where he was yep. interfered with. That's the Brad Allen. Yeah. And then Kadarius Tony lines up offside. So we've got some blatant examples where receivers don't make plays against the Lions, the Eagles, and then this past weekend with the offsides call against the Buffalo Bills. We have a league-high 33 drops from the Chiefs wide receivers. Okay, Patrick Mahomes can help take them only so far. At some point, the drops have to stop. The mistakes have to stop. I like Rasheed Rice a lot. I think that guy has a chance. He already has turned into a big-time weapon. And Kelsey, he's so big and so... Good, like he, but he doesn't move the same way that he did 10 years. He just doesn't. He's smarter, he knows how to do it. And so 
they need some of these receivers to step up and play better. We can't have more drops in Kansas City. We can't have more mistakes in Kansas City. The receivers are failing Mahomes. It reminds me a little bit of when I covered the Broncos and there were people calling for Denver to get more wide receiver help for John Elway. He never had it. The three amigos were one thing, but then there was this gap. And then that stopped after Ed McCaffrey and Rod Smith came in to kind of stabilize things and stop the mistakes and show how it's done in terms of effort and energy and production. And I think that's what the Chiefs need right now. And you could trade Tyreek Hill and get away with it for a little while, but at some point in time, your receivers have to step up and the Chiefs receivers this year need to do more. Period. End of story. I'm totally with you on that one, Adam. It has been very difficult. Let's just move right ahead to topic number four because it's along the same line. What about officiating this year? I mean, we've had some of those calls. You just mentioned them just yeah. in Chiefs games alone. I mean, is this one of those things where do you think the entire NFL is this? Are all teams feeling like this? This is something that's going on or is this just Patrick Mahomes being frustrated with stuff that's happened recently? No, every team is frustrated. And every team is frustrated, not just this season, but last season. And we've made it a six-pack topic before, and we'll make it a six-pack topic again. But officiating is off. The consistency is not there. And the league is going to have to sit down and take a look at what is the best way to address this, handle this, improve upon this going forward. Because I think everybody agrees they want the league to be as good as possible. They want calls to be sound and solid. The Brad Allen crew that we highlighted over the weekend that missed a pass interference call two weeks ago against Alvin Kamara in the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta, which missed the Marquez Valdez-Scantling interference call at Lambeau Field a couple of weeks ago, which we talked about, had a phantom call on Sauce Gardner on Sunday in the Texas game where it was third and 17 or whatever it was, and they called Sauce Gardner for pass interference or contact or whatever it was that was not a penalty. If you watch the replay now, again, it's easy to look at one call, but the fact of the matter is just talk to the coaches, front office members and players around the league, ask them what they think of the officiating, ask them if they're being honest, what would they think? Yes, we could debate whether that was an offsides on Kadarius Tony, which he was lined up wrong and whether it should have been called when there have been 11 offsides penalties called this year on offensive player. We could go through all that. And yes, it is like getting a speeding ticket for doing 61 miles per hour and a 55. Everybody does it. You still were speeding and he was lined up illegally. But do not let that detract from the larger point that more consistency is needed from officiating. More improvement is needed from officiating. And there will be people across the league looking for ways to try to improve it. This You can take that to the bank, Daniel. So I want to ask you, and you can tell me, well, we got to save it for an off-season topic, Daniel. But this is one of those things when we look at the way that the NFL has talked about, especially with challenges and instant replay, they want to get it right. It's important yeah. to them that they get it right. Part of that is officiating, right? Has there been any conversation about making officials full-time rather than having this yeah. be a part-time thing? Well, that's thing? come up. I, no, there, there are people that want to do that. And there are people that believe that officials should be doing that. And they talk about the fact, again, they said to me, if you work in your golf game, you will lower your handicap. I, I don't know that I will. I'm not very good. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is if you put in the time, usually the results pay off. Right. And again, I don't know whether I mentioned this to you on this podcast last week or somebody I was talking to, but it was pointed out to me that coaches are in that building roughly 80 hours a week and players in that building roughly 50 hours a week and officials are in that building, I don't know, five hours a week. Now, mm. who is going to really have the best chance of producing on Sunday? 
the coaches, the players, officials. Well, we'll see. And so the league pays them like full-time officials, but they don't act like full-time officials because they have other jobs doing lawyer work and accounting work and whatever other work that they do. These guys are upstanding members, accomplished professionals in their own respective professions. And so I think the league, certain people in the league is looking for more time and energy and investment from those officials. All right, let's move ahead, Adam, and do topic number five of this week's six pack. Shohei Otani. Yeah. Well, I know, well. I know this is a baseball guy, Adam, but he signed a 10-year, $700 million contract. And it's not just that. He deferred like 98% of the contract to both of those things. I want to ask you, is any of this going to have an impact any way on contracts in the NFL? Well, first of all, I you know, listen, Shohei Otani, I'm sure he's making a ton of marketing money and who knows what he's got there. Um, but to defer that much money, wow, that that's crazy to me. I'm sure there's a reason for it. I don't understand it. But when he signed that contract and I heard the $700 million figure, I'm like, $700 million? <laughs> How many NFL franchises were bought for a price less than that? So I went in and with the help of Evan Kaplan, checked 23 of the 32 NFL franchises went for under $700 million. And oh I posted gosh. this on Instagram and Twitter and people say, well, don't you account for inflation? Of course, of course we account for that. But the fact of the matter is that the Jets in 2000, the year 2000, were purchased by Woody Johnson for $635 million. The Vikings were purchased in 2005 by the Will family for $600 million, $100 million less than Shohei Tani. I know, 18 years ago, I know. Prices adjust, inflation goes up. I got it. Okay, but you could have bought an NFL franchise as recently as 18 years ago for $100 million less than the Dodgers just bought Shohei Otani. Now, inevitably, some of these numbers, I think, do filter in. They're not always relative apples to apples, oranges to oranges from one sport to another. But the fact of the matter is, if you're Patrick Mahomes, well, he's under contract for the next however many years, 10 years. So yeah. that's a bad example. But if his contract were coming up, well, don't you think he'd say, I want Shohei Otani money? Like, why not? Why not? Patrick Mahomes is worth whatever he asks. It's the most popular sport. He's the best player. So if Shohei Otani is getting that, why shouldn't Patrick Mahomes or whoever it is? So the next NFL star, whether that be Caleb Williams or Drake May, who just turned himself in, declared for the NFL draft this past week, Maybe they'll say, I want something along the lines of Shohei Otani if they become a transformational figure in the sport of football. The next transformational figure, whoever that is, we can debate who that is. Why would you not say, I want the Shohei Otani contract? Adam, Justin Jefferson's still looking for a new deal. Is he not the best wide receiver in the NFL? Yeah, he is, He but, but it's not. I don't think it's going to be a wide receiver. And Justin Jefferson, to me, when he gets a new deal, like, It'll set a market that position. It'll be north of $30 million a year, but it's not going to be $70 million a year. We're not going to get that out of whack, Daniel. That's quarterback money. That's quarterback money. All right, Correct. that's fair. I see what Correct. you're saying. All right, let's do one more here. Last topic for the six-pack. Topic number six. I want to know, Adam, it is week 15. Fantasy playoffs are at our doorstep, which means that the real NFL playoffs are just a yeah. few weeks away. Yeah. Do you have any predictions for the AFC and the NFC postseason? Well, here's what I think is interesting, Daniel. When we were going into this season, everybody talked about how the AFC is completely loaded. It's oh. stocked. 
Yep. Better quarterbacks than ever before. The AFC West, who's going to win that division with Mahomes and Herbert and Russell Wilson and, and the Raiders coming on with Jimmy Garoppolo, bringing him in to play quarterback in Las Vegas. And we talked about all the great quarterbacks in the AFC. Josh Allen and Aaron Rodgers and Deshaun Watson and Kenny Pickett was ascending, right? And Joe Burrow was going to lead the Bengals. And Ryan Trevor Lawrence Tannehill was going to take charge. the next step. Yeah, yeah. All, and Anthony Richardson was going to be the guy in Indy. Like, oh, my God, has the landscape changed? And yeah. now the football powerhouses are in the NFC, not the AFC. Who's tougher right now than the 49ers? Who's better right now than the Dallas Cowboys? Would you want to play the Philadelphia Eagles, even though they're tired and they've lost recently? How about Detroit? Like, they've been good even though they lost against Chicago. The NFC is top-heavy right now, the way that many people thought that the AFC was at the beginning of the season. And it just goes to show you that every time you think you know what to expect in the NFL, you don't. You're going to be wrong, and it's going to shift, and it's going to change over time. And a coach that's on the hot seat in October will start winning in November. And a team that's not projected to do well will turn it around with a postseason stretch. And things shift constantly which gives podcasts like this and shows like all the ones that espn has fodder to go back and forth because the narratives always change and the storylines always shift and nothing stays the same and even though we thought that the afc was the greatest conference going ever i thought that with more quarterback talent than ever before it didn't turn out to be that way the best teams in the nfl today are in the nfc and you know what it might be different next month, and it might shift back to the AFC. But right now, damn it, the NFC is on top. And we will stay in the NFC for this week's podcast, and we will shift over to a man whose energy is contagious, a man who's got great ideas, an innovative mind, some great coaching experience, still young, still very young at this. And certainly when you listen to him, he will sound to you like a future head coach. It's the reason that the Arizona Cardinals head coach, Jonathan Gannon, hired him, plucked him out of Cleveland at a young and tender age to take over the Arizona Cardinals offense, become the Cardinals offensive coordinator, Drew Petzing. Nice to meet you, Drew. Likewise, likewise. I don't think we've ever spoken before. I don't think we've ever met before. No, this is a first. This is great. Really excited to do it. You're too young and I'm too old. I think that's why (laughs) our paths haven't crossed. Our hairlines would say opposite, but that is the case. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> how did it feel to be taking over an offense at the young age you are what 35 years old when you take over an offense uh yeah 30 35 36 it was exciting i mean I, you know certainly something you plan for you dream about to finally get that opportunity i think also the thing that made it really special is just the people that it was with you know guys that i came up with that i have a ton of respect for that i learned a lot of football with and learned a lot of football from so I think that really kind of drove it home as kind of an awesome opportunity and something I was excited to do and certainly a big challenge. we got a lot of things we need to accomplish in a short amount of time, but I was really excited about the opportunity. And who are those people that you came up with that are responsible for you being in Arizona right now? Yeah, I think it starts with the head coach, Jonathan Gannon. We came into Minnesota together in 2014, spent four years together there as assistants and just learned so much football from him, learned so much about the industry, you know, bang, you know, played golf together, worked out together you know, back and forth with ideas and scheme and management and leadership, just so many good conversations that helped me develop as a coach. And then kind of as we went our separate paths, just staying in touch and learning football and, you know, really excited watching him do his thing in Philadelphia. And then to get, you know, obviously he got the opportunity here and to be a part of it. So he, he's probably the big one. 
And then Nick Rallis was actually with me in Minnesota after Jonathan left. So me and Nick worked together for two years there in Minnesota without Jonathan. Got to know him really well. Evan Marcus, our strength coach, was the strength coach when we first got to Minnesota. You know, and then guys, you know, if you look at guys that are on the offensive staff that I was able to bring with me, guys like Israel Wolfork, who did the internship with me in Cleveland, then was in the quarterback room with me for a year. Uh, Chris Cook did the internship with me my first year in Cleveland. Um, so got to know him throughout the offseason. Drew Terrell is someone I knew through the Turners, you know, who obviously had a big impact on my career. So it's it, it's just really cool how it kind of all came together. And that same Minnesota staff that you worked on with Jonathan Gannon also had Kevin Stefanski on it right? He brings yep. you to Cleveland as the offensive coordinator. So it's amazing how much you can attribute to your time in Minnesota as a Vikings assistant coach, correct? Yeah, those. I was there six years. It was an amazing opportunity experience. I mean, Mike Zimmer was the head coach all six. I believe I was under four offensive coordinators in six years, you know, so just the different amount of different schemes, teaching styles, leadership styles, technique, being with Kevin really all six of those years. Through all that transition, watching different position coaches come in, watching different coordinators do it, and having the opportunity to work with and work for those guys really helped develop me as a coach and made me who I am. Give me a lesson that you've learned from both Jonathan Gannon and Kevin Stefanski. Wow. I mean, it, it, very different people, very different leadership. I mean, what defensive guy, offensive guy, you know, Kevin is the ultimate, like, even keel. Like, it's all about the process. And he does such a good job of, you know, taking emotions out of the decision-making process putting the plan together, managing the staff, managing the players. I think that was probably the biggest thing from him was just kind of his that that level of like emotional stability in the biggest of moments. I think that was such an important part of who I am as a coach, who you need to be as a play caller, really. Like on the headset on game day of not letting the emotions get in the way of, hey, move on to the next play, worry about the next series. Um, so I think that as an offensive guy was really, really important to me. And I think with Jonathan, it, it's been kind of twofold. Obviously never been in the room with him on the day-to-day. But I learned so much scheme from him telling me what was hard on a defense, you know, what presented issues to him, what they struggled with. And then as a leadership style, I think the the genuineness of his emotion, I think players really feel that. I think they can relate to that. I think it's really important to be who you are. And I think he's always stayed true to that. I think watching him excel and, and having success doing that has really had an impact on me. You talk about being who you are as a coach. How much of that was shaped by you tearing your ACL while you played football in college? A lot of it. I, you know, two injuries in two seasons, actually. My freshman year, uh, I had a list Frank fracture. I got a screw put in my left foot, missed the whole season. Came back my sophomore year, didn't play a game my freshman year. Came back, blew out my knee, ACL, and really kind of ended my career. And I think it it gave me an appreciation for the sport. You know, when it was taken away from you, you realized how much it you missed it and how much it, it gave to you, not only from a physical standpoint of being able to play it, but the relationships, the game, just that – it was one of those things that got sucked out of my life so quickly that like I never had a chance to say goodbye to it. And it just felt like a big void. And so as I started to figure out like, all right, at that point, I wasn't, I mean, clearly wasn't going to the NFL. I mean, if you look at me, you knew that wasn't the case. And, uh, you know, so I had not played in two years, didn't know what I wanted to do, starting to think about life after college and had the opportunity. I went to the head coach and said, look, I, you know, I, I don't know if coaching's for me, but I'd love the opportunity to see because I just, I, I missed the game. And Coach Ritter was the coach at the time, did a great job of letting me have that opportunity and embracing me and, and giving me the chance and teaching me. And I feel like it was like probably the first week I sat in that meeting room with the staff and was just like, this is awesome. Like, this is everything I hoped it would be. You know, just the scheme, the relationship, it was all there in one place. And it was like, God, these guys do this for a living. I was a junior in college. I'm like, this is all they do. Like, this is their job. This is their life. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> and so it just kind of sunk in with me as like, God, if I could do that, if I could figure out a way to make that work, 
to keep the game as a part of my life, I really wanted to do that. What was it? Uh, what What about it? How do I say this? My producer, this is my producer makes me look at what was it that you love so much about it? I, I think there's it's so many different things that the sport brings to, to me, to my life. And I, I think to all the people that kind of get the opportunity to be around the sport, I think the number one thing is kind of the, the relationships you build, the proximity, the it's almost like the stress of the job and the reality of the game bring people closer together. One, because generally most people are in it, love the game. Right. So you're around a lot of people with similar interests, similar goals, similar aspirations, a love of the sport. And then I think the reality of competing, like when you have to compete in the way that the football game makes you compete with everybody on the same. That requires to be successful. I think it brings people really close together. So I think that was a part of it. I mean, that first staff when I was a junior in college, I think we had I don't know if we had eight coaches total. Like, I think I might have been the eighth guy. You know, it wasn't like we had an operations department or anything like I was filming practice. I was intercut. Like it, it was just like you just get so close to the people yeah. you work with. And I think the other part of it is the game itself. It, it's such a unique sport in terms of what it requires, the different people that can play it. I mean, you think of the different body types and physical attributes that are incorporated in the game of football. It's it's unlike any other sport. I mean, you got to like I played in college. I mean, I, I was five, seven, 160, 570 pounds. You got guys playing on my team that are 6'4", 320. Like, it's like we look like different species, and yet we're out here competing, trying to accomplish the same goals. I think I think those things make the sport so exciting. I think it's one of the reasons that people really enjoy watching. So what was your big break to allow you to get into coaching in the NFL, Drew? Yeah, so I was in college. I was actually an outside linebacker coach at Yale University. It was my first position job. I was recruiting my own areas out on the West Coast with Tony Reno. Um, and I kind of got a phone call out of the blue from a guy named Steve Guerra, who was Rob Chudzinski's like uh, assistant to the head coach in Cleveland. They just got the job. And he said, hey, it was it was like I, I kind of knew something was going on. He's like, hey, you know, this is what we're looking for. It's that 20 for 20 position that I think, you know, I don't know who started it. But, hey, you get 20 grand for the year. We're going to, you know, you're going to work 20 hours a day all year. And I was like. Okay, great. Like, where do I sign up? Let's go. And uh, and he said, we're, we're trying to accumulate a couple names. We want to do some phone interviews, but your name came across our desk. Would you be interested? I mean, it would be a little bit of a pay cut, but great opportunity. Don't know what side of the ball you're going to be on. Don't know exactly what the role would be. And I was like, yeah, all in. I'm ready. Like, let me know how to do it. And had a couple phone interviews. And, and as I started to get deeper into the interview process, I realized kind of what happened. Uh, a guy named Ben Bloom and Dave Borgonzi uh ben bloom's now the d-line coach of the browns dave borgonzi the linebacker coach for the bears they came up under tim murphy at harvard ben bloom's actually from my hometown uh in wellesley he's a couple years older than me so when i first came out of college i was networking and and, and ben actually got me my first internship at harvard he was the assistant wow. d-line coach there they were looking for an unpaid intern he knew from you know i was making calls trying to find my first job and he said he's like look I, you know it's not going to pay anything it's unpaid but it's 20 minutes from where you grow up it's a great level of football. Uh, I think it'd be a great opportunity for you. And I was like, well, I, you know, yeah, obviously I'm there. He left before I ever got there. So we never worked together. Um, mm. He took a job with, I think Eric Mangini was at the Browns at the time. He took that 20 for 20 position with the Browns. And then he brought Dave Borgonzi into that position when he was with the Cowboys. And when Chud got hired, the president at the time was Alex Schreiner. Yeah. And Chud had never had the 20 for 20 role in the building. So he didn't know exactly what they made, how they worked, what they did. So I think he leaned on Alec a little bit. And Alec was like, hey, if you really want the details of this, you need to call these two guys in Dallas to get an idea of how to build the program and how to get the most out of it. So they called down to Dave and called Ben and said, hey, what did you make? What did you do? 
And through that conversation, I think both of them said, hey, if you're looking for names, there's a guy at Yale that would be a great fit. I think he'd do a great job for you. Give him a call and see if he's interested. And, and that kind of got me in the door. And then there was a, you know, it'd be a two hour story of kind of how I got stuck there on my interview in a snowstorm. <laughs> and uh, before I left, they finally were like, well, at this point, you're stuck here. So we might as well hire you and uh, jumped in and hit the ground running and, and was very fortunate early on in terms of who I was around and who I got to learn from and who I got to work with. You know, we'll get to Arizona, but I think you deserve Arizona after spending time in Cleveland and Minnesota and enduring the winters that you did there. This is God's, the football God's reward to you for putting up with the winters that you did. You now get to live in Arizona, which is sort of like cheating in the winter. It's great. right? <laughs> the golf courses are still open during the bye week in December. It's very different than when the golf courses aren't open in April and September. <laughs> so you're playing golf this week. I, I've got to try to get around it just to say that I did it. Yeah, just to play golf in December. Like, what an unbelievable thing. And you don't have to get on a plane to do it or anything, Drew, right? A little different than Minneapolis and Cleveland. So, so, so tell me what it was like to be in Minneapolis as a young coach when you are a part of the Minneapolis miracle. Yeah, it was one of the more – and, and like I, as you say this statement, I get the chills thinking about it. Just such an amazing moment. I think it's – you always make that statement as a coach, as a player, like, hey, the game's never over. You know, you're always in the fight. you got time left on the clock. you got to keep playing. And I think you don't – genuinely, as a coach, as a player, you rarely get a moment where that actually hits home. And I think that will forever be in the back of my mind of, like, no matter what the score is, no matter how much time is left, you know, it, it felt like that game was over. You know, we had the lead. We, we went up big early in the game. We had a great team playing at a really high level, had a great defense. They came back and, I, you know, they scored with – I can't remember how much time left. It wasn't a lot. And I think it was, what, there's probably 10 seconds left. You got no timeouts. You're well out of field goal range. And you're sitting there like, all right, one, one more play. Like, here it goes. Like, he'll throw it. Game's going to end. And then all of a sudden, like, he caught it. And, you're and like, it was like you didn't believe it. It was right near the sideline. You couldn't tell if his knee went down. Did he step out? Did he catch it? You see him sprint to the end zone. And like, no whistles are blowing. People are going crazy. And I think in the box it was like – not like calm's not the right word. But it was like completely silent because you're like, that can't have just ha like something like he must have stepped out. We're going to kick a field goal. He had there has to be a penalty. He, you know, the clock ran like and then all of a sudden after like 35, 40 seconds, I think everyone kind of realized what happened. And it was like pandemonium, like complete chaos in the box, like jumping up, screaming, jumping on other people, completely lost track of what reality. And I was actually I mean, we, were, we you know, you're running to the elevator, getting down to the locker room, thinking you're going to celebrate with the guys. You get to the locker room, no one's there yet. Like, we hadn't even taken the knee on the extra point. So I was actually out on the field, I think, before the game officially ended. And it was like the place was going absolutely nuts. It was wild. It, it truly was one of the more, probably the most memorable sports experience I've been a part of. I was going to ask you if you've ever had a more memorable experience than that or anything <laughs> I, that can compare, Drew. It, I, it would be really difficult at that point to, to say anything comes close to that. Just from the sheer, like, the probability of that happening in a moment. Like you've yeah. been, I've been a part of some great comebacks, some really hard losses where, hey, in the third quarter, you had that probability of winning or losing and it went the other way. But to have it all translate into one basically seismic shift of probability, I think it's just kind of, it was awesome. It was a really special moment to, to be a part of and something I'll cherish, you know, for the rest of my life. Okay. So in Cleveland, you coached Josh Dobbs. In Arizona, you coached uh, Josh Dobbs. Josh Dobbs in Minnesota, where you were. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on what the Josh Dobbs experience was like from coaching him in Cleveland to Arizona to what he's doing right now. We don't know whether he's going to continue starting as we tape this. Probably not, is my guess, but we'll see. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on how much he captured this country's fancy for a period of time. 
Yeah, I, I think it's something we always saw. And I think it's, it, as you said, like it, people, the, the outside world kind of rides the wave with it in terms of their excitement or their disappointment or vice versa. I think the thing that you noticed with him from the first day we were with him in Cleveland was just kind of that he didn't do that. And I think that's what allows him to be him and mm-hmm. to play at his level was it's very matter of fact. It's very pragmatic in terms of he, he learns the offense really well. He develops great relationships with his teammates. He works his tail off. So he's always prepared when the opportunity presents itself. And I think you know exactly what you're going to get when it does. And when it works great, he's going to feel really good about it and continue to work at it. And when he has a game where he doesn't feel like he played up to standard, he's going to own it. He's going to move on and try to improve. And I think that's why you saw kind of he's been the same person every place. Like he he's a good player. He, he's a great teammate. He works his tail off to be who he is and to play the game at the way he does. Um, so it, it's always fun when you watch those guys have success because obviously, you know, not everyone gets the opportunity. There are a lot of guys going through that process that never get the opportunity to start in the right situation and go have that success. So certainly somebody I'm rooting for and, and love to watch play. And Josh Dobbs gets supplanted in Arizona eventually by Kyler Murray. What has been your impression so far during your time in that building about the type of quarterback that Kyler is? He's special. He, he's been awesome. And, and I've said this before, really, since the moment I walked in the building, he's been everything you would want a franchise quarterback to be. And, and obviously the injury and the rehab, you know, took away from a little bit of his ability to to really hone in and perfect the craft of playing the position in the offense. But just in terms of the way he attacked his rehab, the way he's immersed himself into the offense and adapted to what's really been something he probably hasn't done. I mean, he's been in the same offense almost his entire life in a lot of ways and had a ton of success doing it. You know, it's not like he's a failed product of a quarterback. I mean, he was Heisman Trophy route winner. He was a first overall pick. He was a, you know paid as a franchise quarterback for all the right reasons. And he jumped right in and said, hey, this is something I know is going to be good for me. I think we can win doing this. This is, I love this. I want to be a part of this. Teach me this. And, and he's been wow. he's been so fun to work with from that standpoint. Um, and then you see the competitive nature, which I think is what makes it fun. Like, he's competitive. You know, the second you tell him he can't do something, he's going to show you that he can no matter what that thing is. And so as a coach, that's what you, you want those guys. You want guys that are going to fight and claw and scratch and work their tail off to go be successful because that's what you're doing as a coach. And that's what we're trying to do as an organization. So he, he's really been fun to work with and, and really impressed with the way he's handled the entire process. Yet there are people out there who've questioned his leadership, have questioned his motivation, have questioned a lot of things about him. It doesn't sound like you have any of those questions or doubts in your mind. None. No, no, no. I think that the best part about him is he's going to be himself. He's not going to let that outside noise influence who he is, how he does things. You know, certainly as a player, as a person, myself included, you're always trying to grow and be a better version of yourself. And so as as people call you out and they challenge you and they question you, you listen to it, you hear it. But I think the thing he's done a great job of is focusing on being him and not being overly concerned with the noise. I think he feels very confident in his desire to win, in his Mm -hmm. process, in the way that he prepares and works. And certainly, yeah, can you tweak that a little bit to make yourself better? Absolutely, as we all are as people. Um, but I think he's done a really nice job of handling that because that's not always easy when people question you like that. And it can be frustrating and it can be um, certainly upsetting if you don't agree with it. Uh, but at the same time, you got to let it go. you got to make sure that you're staying true to who you are. And I think he's done a great job of doing that. And, and Drew, I know it's not your decision, but Arizona has two first-round draft picks. A lot of people wondered whether they could eventually pursue a quarterback. But it sounds like in your mind, you know who you'd like your quarterback to be. Am I reading that incorrectly? No, absolutely. I think, and the goal is always going to be to make the roster better in every way, shape, and form. I think Monty, the you know the scouting staff, the entire department is committed to that goal, but feel really good about where Kyler's at as a franchise quarterback. I mean, he's absolutely that, as you just said, and I think he's done a great job of embracing that role and owning that role and, and moved into that role as he hit the field here. You know, whatever it was about a month ago. Um, so I've been really pleased with that. 
Now I have to ask you about your tight end because you were a tight ends coach for two years in Cleveland. You guys released Zach Ertz. Trey McBride has taken over the starting job. And it looks like right now, and I've said this to people in your organization, it looks like he's emerged as kind of an elite tight end. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on Trey McBride, what he's done and what he can be. Yeah, I think you just hit on it. I think that this, and I know Kyler, I think Kyler said it after the game, the sky's the limit for him in terms of his progression. I think been really pleased with the way he came in and the way he's performed when, as you said, Zach got hurt, he stepped into a bigger role. And a lot of times in this league, guys are, hey, are you ready for the opportunity when you get your opportunity? And I think that to Trey's credit, uh, he was. He prepared his tail off. He made sure that whatever opportunities came his way, he was going to make the most of. And then you've seen that success on Sunday when he's put in those situations. Unbelievable catches in traffic, winning his one-on-ones versus man. And I think the thing that I've been pleased with and the thing that I've challenged him on is becoming a more complete tight end. Like, hey, I've seen the speed. I've seen the hands. But can you separate versus man? Can you win in contested catch situations? And then can you show up in the run game? Like, can you be a – Look, you're going to be blocking people who have 30, 40, 50 pounds on you. But if you can do that in the run game, what that's going to open up for you in the passing game is going to completely change the dynamic of your ability to play the position and affect the game. And I think he's embraced that role, which is not an easy role. I mean, that, that's a hard task. It's a hard job and been really pleased with his growth. And I think the thing is, is kind of like we said about Kyler is he's never satisfied. Like he wants to be better regardless of what the outcome of the game was, regardless about how well he feels like he played. He's always kind of pushing himself and trying to improve. He looks like a beast out there. Your last game against the Steelers, he's getting up. He's taunting the fans. He's demonstrative. He's making plays. Yo, I love I mean, I love that stuff. I love that energy. And speaking of energy, you have unbelievable energy. Where does it come from? Uh, I, you know, again, it's probably just the, the way I was raised, the people I've been around. I've been very fortunate from that standpoint. And, and I love what I do. And I think when you, and you, you know, in, in any profession, when you love what you do, it's easy to get excited about it. It's easy to get emotional about it and enjoy it. Um, especially when you're around great people. So I, I think I've been very fortunate in my career and my life to, to do that and have those opportunities. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm making the most of it. And certainly I think my energy comes through because of that. I can feel it. It's unbelievable. Like I said, we've never met, we've never spoken, but within 30 seconds, I'm like, I love Drew's energy. It just stands out to me. Uh, I appreciate it. And likewise, I mean, I, I've been watching you do your job for a long time. So just to have the opportunity to sit here and talk to you, this is a pretty cool moment for me. I'm not going to lie. Well, it's my honor, Drew. I appreciate you making the time. I hope you get a round in during your bye week. We wish you luck down the stretch. Selfishly, as somebody who rosters Trey McBride in his fancy football league, you can't get him the football enough. Keep that thought in your mind down the line. Always. Always. Right? Okay. And I appreciate your time today, and we'll be talking again. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Adam. Man, there are people that just have a vibe to them that just radiate energy, and that is Drew Petsing. After we got done, I called the Carlos. I'm like, thank you for getting that guy for me. I'd never spoken to him before, and I really enjoyed talking him to him on this day. Guy had great energy, great ideas. And I remember when I used to be in Denver, Mark Slareth, my friend, who I still do a weekly radio appearance with in Denver these days, every Thursday, he would always say to me, and I always remember this, Adam, in life, there are energy givers and energy takers. And Drew Petzing is an energy giver. He is an energy giver and we wish him the best this upcoming week against the 49ers and for the remainder of the season. All right, last week, a little notice was sent out by Paramount and CBS Sports. And I did want to read this. It said, in the ultimate sports and pop culture crossover event, Nickelodeon and CBS Sports will bring Super Bowl 58 
to Bikini Bottom, the iconic undersea home, to SpongeBob SquarePants for a kids and family centric, surprise filled special presentation of the game airing exclusively on Nickelodeon Sunday, February 11th, 2024 at 6.30 p.m. In the first ever Super Bowl alternate telecast, SpongeBob SquarePants, voiced by Tom Kenny and Patrick Starr, voiced by Bill Thagrabaki. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The newest additions to the Nickelodeon booth will join CBS sports analyst Nate Burleson, play-by-play announcer Noah Eagle to call the game. Sandy Cheeks, voiced by Carolyn Lawrence, will make her sideline reporting debut, while Larry the Lobster, voiced by Mr. Lawrence, provides live commentary, and Dora the Explorer, voiced by Diana Zermeno, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and Boots, voiced by Asher Colton Spence, help explain penalty calls during the game. NFL Slime Times, Young Dylan and Dylan Schefter also will report live from Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada. Additional details on the Nickelodeon Super Bowl telecast, including programming and production, will be revealed later. So, the takeaway to that. Dylan Schefter reporting live from Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas during Super Bowl 58. Do you know what this means, Daniel? Is this Dylan's first time doing the Super Bowl? Or is this, tell me what this means. Because like, uh, that's an opportunity of a lifetime, dude. It means that the first Schefter, the first Schefter ever to work in actual Super Bowl broadcast game will be Dylan Schefter. Stop it. That's amazing. Congratulations I've ne- Dylan. I've never worked <laughs> in actual Super Bowl. I've done interviews post-game. Sure. I've been around the Super I've done the pregame, but the first Schefter ever to do a Super Bowl in-game will be Dylan Schefter. And you know what, Daniel? Wouldn't want it any other way. That's so amazing. We'll, we'll be out there. We'll do the pregame show, ESPN Sunday NFL Countdown from Allegiant Stadium, and then we'll shift to dad mode. And I don't even know if I'm going to be allowed to be with her on the field. I have no idea how this is going to work. This is all new. We're going to see how this Develops and turns out, but she'll be doing sideline reports during Super Bowl 58. Well, I'm doing, I don't know what I'm doing during the game, but we're going to see. It's going to be very interesting. So at the very least, Dylan has a very good excuse for missing school that week, Daniel. All right. We want to thank the Cardinals offensive coordinator, a man of great energy, Drew Petzing. I want to thank the host of the Fantasy Focus podcast, Daniel Dopp. I want to thank my great producers, Christina Buswell, Sarah Abbott, and you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week when we are scheduled to be joined for a year-end closing podcast by the Vikings quarterback, Kirk Cousins, which should be fascinating. We look forward to having him. We thank him in advance for his time. And until then, we'll be back in this spot next week with more information, interviews, insight, and Kirk Cousins. Until then, have a great week, everybody. Be well and stay safe.